as I walked out of the room, I walked past Cheryl, my boss, Cheryl Sandberg, and I'm expecting sort of a high five or a pat on the back. She stopped, she looked right at me and she said, when you say, um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. That's Kim Scott, New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Radical Candor. I, it was almost like I'd been walking through my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth and no one told me it was there. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Kim Scott to talk about how you can be a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity and how leaders can create bullshit-free zones where people love their work and working together. Unfortunately, radical candor doesn't mean you'll never have to fire anyone. Uh, It just means that they won't be surprised when you fire them. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Kim Scott is quite the resume. After getting her bachelor's at Princeton and her MBA from Harvard, she led teams at both Apple and Google and has coached the CEOs of some of the top companies in the world, including Dropbox and Twitter. From these unique perspectives, Kim drew the groundbreaking conclusions that led to her best-selling book, Radical Candor. Fundamentally, the reason why I wrote the book stems from uh, an early management experience I had where I came into the office. It was a small software company, about 65 people, and about 10 people had sent me the same article. And you know when 10 people send you the same article, you better stop what you're doing and read it. And the article was about how people would rather have a boss who is a real asshole, but very competent, than one who's really nice, but incompetent. And I thought, gosh, are they sending me this because they think I'm a jerk or because they think I'm incompetent? And surely those are not my two choices. And I think for an awful lot of people, there is this false dichotomy that you're either super successful in a, in a bad human being or you're a really good human being and kind of a pushover. And that is a false dichotomy. Uh, and so I think a lot of my management career has, has been about breaking free of that false dichotomy. And certainly writing radical candor is about breaking free of that false dichotomy. And the sense that I got you know, when I was reading the book is it just, to me, it seems like how to make progress, right? As a leader, as a boss, because I I believe at our core, many times we want the same things. I mean, we want the organization to be successful, the team members to be successful and and everybody to succeed. But sometimes there's breakdowns when things are not going on track or somebody is not performing the expectations. So I guess just to, to really kick this off, what does the term radical candor actually mean? Yeah. So, so radical candor means the ability to care personally about someone at the same time that you challenge them directly. And to me, that's the essence of being a good boss. Uh, it is really, it's, it's actually the essence of having a good relationship, period. But in particular, it's important when you're the boss because it's your job to tell people uh, when things are going really well. It's your job to offer praise, but it's also your job to tell them when things are not going so well. And you always want to do both things in a way that shows that 
you care about the person. And why is that so radical? What's so radical about care personally, challenge directly? Like I've worked with a lot of different leaders uh, in the course of my career, and I've never met anyone who says, yeah, I don't really care about my people, so I'm going to be a great boss. So I think it's worth thinking for a moment, like what is it that moves us down on that care personally dimension? And I think the problem here starts when we're about 18, 19, 20 years old, and we're right at that moment when our egos are maximally fragile, but our personas are beginning to solidify. And right at that moment, we get our first job and someone comes along and says, be professional. And I think for a lot of people, we sort of unconsciously translate that to mean leave your emotions, leave your real identity, leave your humanity, leave everything that's best about you at home and show up at work like some kind of robot. And you can't possibly care personally about others when you yourself are showing up like some kind of robot. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is, is on the challenge directly dimension. And the problem here begins not when we're 18 years old, but when we're 18 months old. And we have a parent who says some version of, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And now, congratulations, you're the boss and it's your job to say it. And this is hard. It's really hard to undo training that's been pounded into us since we were 18 months old. So that's why I call it radical candor, because it's rare and it's hard. But when we can do it, we're more successful and happier. As Kim describes, the factors of caring personally and challenging directly exist on two separate axes. Radical candor happens in the quadrant where the two coincide. But I wanted Kim to dive deeper into the other three quadrants, the ones that fall outside of radical candor. Maybe the best way to define radical candor is to say what it's not. So very often we do challenge directly, but we forget to show that we care personally. And that I call obnoxious aggression. Uh, when I first started writing the book, I called that the asshole quadrant. And, and I stopped doing that for a very important reason, because when I did it, people would, would use the radical candor framework and they would start writing names in boxes. And I beg of you, please don't do that with the radical candor ideas. This is not like another Myers-Briggs personality test. Use radical candor as like a, a compass to drive conversations to a better place. Okay, so obnoxious aggression is what happens when you challenge, but you forget to show that you care. Now, very often when we realize we've been a jerk, Rather than moving the right direction on the care personally dimension of radical candor, we go the wrong way on challenge directly. And we say, oh, I didn't really mean it. It doesn't really matter. But of course, I did mean it and it does matter. And then we wind up in the worst place of all, manipulative insincerity. And that's where backstabbing behavior, the false apology, political behavior, passive aggressive behavior kind of creeps into the workplace. And it's fun to tell stories about obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity because that's where kind of the office drama takes place. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of people make the vast majority of mistakes in this last, in this third area, which is where we do show that we care personally because we're nice people. But because we're so afraid of hurting somebody's feelings, we don't tell them something they'd be better off knowing and we don't challenge directly. And then you, that's what I call ruinous empathy. And that's the most common mistake of all. So with ruinous empathy, every time I think about this one, I always think about like week one of American Idol. 
And it's when they have all the contestants on and it's it, it, it's largely, you know, people are laughing at them. They're like generally not very good singers and so on. And I always thought watching that, I'm thinking, no one ever told these people, right? That perhaps like it, maybe they, they had room for improvement and that they could hone their craft or maybe that they, they weren't in the, you know, they weren't destined to be a great singer. And because of that, here they are on stage, week one American Idol, and you've got the country laughing at them. And it's interesting because like you said, you know, so many people fall into like the trap of ruinous empathy where they do care personally about someone and they feel like that because I care personally, I don't want to hurt your feelings. Why do you believe that's so common? And what's a way around that? Well, I think it's it's common because like for many things, we have a negativity bias. We tend to learn lessons from making mistakes. And so we tend to focus more on mistakes than on than on what works. And I think this is especially true when it comes to social interactions. So we pay attention to the sort of mistakes that we make more than the successes, actually. Most often, when you offer radical candor instead of ruinous empathy to someone, when you tell someone, hey, <laughs> stick with your day job or get some singing lessons or whatever, then it worked. People appreciate it. Nine times out of 10, people actually really appreciate radical candor. But one time out of 10, you will have a radical candor train wreck. And you'll tell somebody something and you'll mean it well, and you'll maybe even say it really nicely, and the person will be enraged at you. And very often, I think we optimize for the one time out of 10. We optimize for the radical. We, we're very conservative and we, we're unwilling to make a mistake. So I think that's part of it. I also think part of it is that we optimize for short term rather than long term. In the short term, when you tell somebody something that stings a little bit in the moment, it stings a little bit in the moment, even if it's in their long-term best interest to know, we, we hate to see that short-term sting. So, so very often what's right in front of our faces looms so much larger than what's just a mile down the road. Yeah. And, and as you said, I mean, there's two types of suffering, right? The, the short term and the long term, you kind of decide which one you want. Now, there's a story in the book you talk about your experience where I think you received some radical candor from Sheryl Sandberg while you were yes. at Google. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I had just started working at Google and uh, and I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO about how the AdSense business was doing. And I walked into the room and there in one corner of the room was Sergey Brin, one of the founders in a bright blue spandex unitard wearing toe shoes, standing on an elliptical trainer, <clears throat> you know, kind of pedaling away, stepping away at not what I was expecting. And there in the other corner of the room was Eric Schmidt, who was CEO at the time, doing his email. And he was so intent on his computer. It was like his brain had been plugged into the machine. And I think probably like you would have felt, I felt a little bit nervous uh, in, the, in the moment. How in the world was I supposed to get these people's attention? Luckily for me, the business, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added over the last couple of months, Eric almost fell off his chair. What did you say? This is incredible. Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineers? So I'm feeling like the meetings are going okay. In fact, I now believe that I am a genius. And as I walked out of the room, I walked past Cheryl, my boss, Cheryl Sandberg, and I'm expecting sort of a high five or a pat on the back. And instead, Cheryl says to me, you said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And at that point, I sort of breathed a huge sigh of relief because if that was all I had done, who really cared? And I sort of made this brush off gesture with my hand. And I said, yeah, I know it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, really. 
And then she said, I know this great speech coach. I'm sure Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I made this brush off gesture with my hand. I said, no, I don't have time for a speech coach. Didn't you hear about all those new customers? I'm busy. And then she stopped. We're walking back to her office. She stopped. She looked right at me and she said, when you say, um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now she's got my full attention. And some people might say it was mean of Cheryl to say I sounded stupid, but in fact, it was the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career. Because if she hadn't told me that, I would never have gone to see the speech coach. And I wouldn't have learned that Cheryl was not exaggerating. I literally said, um, every third word. And this was news to me because I had been giving presentations my whole career. I had raised millions of dollars for two startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. And this really got me to thinking two things, really. One, what was it about Cheryl that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me? But also, why had no one else told me? I, it was almost like I'd been walking through my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth, and no one told me it was there. And that was when I really realized that the two elements of, of Cheryl's management style that were so effective were this sort of care personally business. I knew Cheryl had my back. Uh, Cheryl had done a million things to show me that. When I first moved from New York to California to take the job, I was a little bit lonely. Cheryl could tell I was lonely. And she introduced me to a book club that I'm still part of to this day. So when I had a family member fall ill, Cheryl said, I'm going to write your coverage plan. Your team has got your back. That's what teams do for each other. And that was the kind of thing that Cheryl did. She couldn't do it for all 5,000 people in her organization, of course. But if you worked directly with Cheryl, you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that she had your back. And so it was easy for me to know that she was telling me this, not to kick me in the shins or something, but because she had my back. Uh, at the same time, even though Cheryl was concerned about people's short-term feelings, it's not like she was a jerk or anything, she never let that concern get in the way of her willingness to tell us things that we needed to know for our own success and for the success of the team. And so that was the challenge directly part. You know, so there's this this is this quote that I always like from Ed Catmull, who's the president of Pixar, and he said, "Like you don't want to be where there is more candor in the hallways than in the rooms where ideas or policy are being hashed out." And and it seems like radical candor really kind of gets to the root of things, rather than having the meeting after the meeting or when people go on walks and, and things like that. Yeah, it is so inefficient. The meeting it's it's both inefficient, ineffective, and unjust. The meeting after the meeting. There's a great Medium article that was just published by Francoise Brower, who was the COO at Pinterest, which had a culture that was rife with the meeting after the meeting. It, it really speaks to why, if you can create a culture where people say what they really think in a way that is not obnoxious but that shows that they're respecting their colleagues in the meeting, then you can have three times less meetings and you can also be more innovative. People cannot be innovative if they are unable to say what they really think. And they also can't build good relationships if they can't disagree with one another in a way that is respectful. 
And on that note, let's speak to relationships and I guess the importance of having those relationships and fostering them and, and particularly understanding what motivates each person on your team. Yeah, it is a, one of the best bits of management advice actually came to me from someone who worked for me, not from one of my bosses. So when I was at Google, I worked with Russ Laraway and he came to me one day and he said, I, I want to fly all my managers from all around the world to like a hundred managers from everywhere in the world. I want to fly them all to California and I want to teach them how to have get to know you conversations. And I sort of poo poo the whole, I was like, Ross, don't be ridiculous. Like people either know how to have get to know you conversations or they don't. And Russ really gave me an education that day. He's like, no, quote unquote, people skills are not skills that are innate. They're skills that you develop. And Russ is a Marine and he had a lot of great leadership training in the Marines, not the place that I would have expected a lot of the, what is often dismissed as soft and fuzzy leadership training, but these are not soft skills. These are difficult to acquire skills. And these are skills that actually create business success. So Russ convinced me that if the leaders on his team, if the managers on his team knew how to get to know the people who worked for them, that the team would be much more effective. And so he developed this strategy for this sort of process for career conversations where you have a get to know you conversation, which is sort of like starting with kindergarten, tell me about your life. And you don't have to start with kindergarten if you want. Like care personally doesn't mean intrude on people's privacy, but you want to get to understand what motivates people at work, what they really care about at work. And the best way you can do that is have a conversation with them about not just their career, but their life and sort of focus in on the pivots that people have made in their life and understand what motivated those changes. Because that's how you really begin to understand what people care about. So that's the first conversation. The second one is about the future. In 20 years, at the height of your career, what do you imagine? And imagine two or three different scenarios. And then you begin to really get a sense of people's dreams. And then you can build an 18-month plan that maybe they're not going to achieve their dreams in 18 months, but they understand that their current job is taking them a step in the direction of their dreams. It, it's interesting having these types of conversations because I found that sometimes when you ask someone, okay, well, what is what 18-month plan, Right how rarely people have actually you have actually thought about that or written it down or like have that and like working through that provides some clarity. I always feel like it's very difficult to go to a place where or get to somewhere that you don't actually have a destination in mind, you don't have it kind of visualized and so on. But that also impacts like day-to-day performance and productivity, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was one woman on Russ's team who said her dream was to own and operate a spirulina farm. And what she was doing and her job was selling ad servers. <laughs> there seemed like a giant gulf between what she wanted and what she was doing. But as they talked about what are the skills you need to develop, and this is part of the 18-month plan, is identifying some of the skills you want to develop in order to take a step in the direction of your dream. And one of the major skills she wanted to develop was management skills. And she was getting those skills selling these ad servers and working for Russ, who's one of the most talented leaders I've ever come across and working under Cheryl, who also gave a lot of great leadership advice. So now all of a sudden, this job she had, which seemed like only a way to pay the rent, 
while she was deferring her dreams became something that was more meaningful. Oftentimes, soliciting direct feedback as a leader with 30, 40, 50, or more people under you isn't as easy or doable. There simply isn't enough time for that many meetings. I asked him to elaborate on how this framework might look for a person at the top of the organization. So there's one exception to the praise in public, criticize in private rule, and that is when you're the CEO or when you're the leader of your team. And you don't have to be the CEO. At, at Google, I was not the CEO. <laughs> I was a, a middle manager. But one of the things that I did was I encouraged the people who were most likely to criticize me in private. I asked them to do it publicly. There were a couple of reasons why. One reason was that whatever their criticism was, I could be sure 30 other people had the same criticism. And now I could address that once rather than 30 times. So it was, I'm kind of an efficiency freak. So it's more efficient. Two, it gave me the opportunity to model for the whole organization how to receive feedback, how to solicit feedback and how to respond appropriately to it when you get it. And then there was a, another thing that was important. I think I say at the, at the core of good management is a good human relationship. It's not a friendship. It's different. But one of the things that's most damaging to a human relationship is a power imbalance. And therefore, one of the most important things you can do as a leader is actually put your power down. And by soliciting criticism in public, it was a way for me to put my power down and to say, your opinions matter. And it's my job to solicit your opinions and to act on them. So being a fan of leading by example, we want to kind of instill radical candor within our organizations and, you know, doing so not just with our leadership team, but actually every team member kind of behaving in that manner of, of being radically candid with, with, you know, each other is the best way to do it just simply by being the example for it. Or are there other ways to kind of uh, implement it into an organization? The good news about radical candor is that it's fast and it's free. Uh, I mean, you can check the book out from the library if you can't afford to buy it, uh, but please do buy it if you can't afford to. Uh, and then you can put the ideas into practice. And, and the, the single best thing you can do to implement radical candor are impromptu two-minute conversations. So just like Cheryl did for me when she saw me say, I'm too much, we didn't schedule a follow-up meeting. You know, I was walking to her next meeting with her. She just fitted in to the things she was already doing. So these impromptu two-minute conversations. And by the way, it's not all about giving criticism. You also want to solicit. There's an order of operations. So after a meeting, you want to ask somebody on your team to critique you. You also want to give praise. And that you can do publicly right in the meeting in front of everyone. And then you also want to offer criticism and, and you want to gauge how it's landing. So that's kind of the upper order of operations. And these are things you do impromptu in the minute, in the moment, throughout your day. A little bit harder now that we're not physically co-located, but you can call someone right after a meeting, try to schedule a little slack time in between your, your Zooms all day long. So that's the best way to do it is discipline. The, hard, the bad news about radical candor is it takes emotional discipline. You'd rather do almost anything else in those two minutes in between meetings than call the person and have this quick conversation. But if you put it into practice, it's really, it's like brushing and flossing. It's not like a root canal. Uh, it's something you just get in the habit of doing and you feel kind of bad when you don't do it once you get it. But the hard thing, of course, is getting in the habit. So what are some things you can do to build this habit for yourself, but for your whole organization? 
One of the things that I recommend is saving maybe five minutes at the end of your one-on-one with people who work for you and ask them at the end of the one-on-one to give you feedback. And don't just say, do you have any feedback for me? Because if you do that, I can already tell you what the answer is. Oh, no, everything's fine. So you want to figure out how you're going to ask it. And you need to ask it in a way that feels authentic. One of the questions that that one of my coaches recommended, which I like, is what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? However, I was working with another coach, Krista Quarles, when she was CEO of OpenTable, and she said, I could never imagine those words coming out of my mouth. She said, the question I like to ask is, tell me why I'm smoking crack. That's fine too. Like ask it, uh, just make sure the person doesn't, isn't struggling with the drug habit, but ask it in a way that feels authentic to you and in a way that works for the other person. So I started this company with Jason Rosoff that does coaching and workshops and keynotes about radical candor. And after we'd been working together for about a month, Jason said to me, I hate your question. I hate it when you ask me that, that what could I do or stop doing? He said, it's too open-ended, it's too vague. So I try to ask him more specifically. So it's got to feel authentic to you and it's got to work for the other person. So if our listeners today do only one thing as a result of this podcast, and it is to solicit feedback at the end of their one-on-ones, time well spent. There's a lot more in the book about 360s and all that business. But if you just solicit feedback at the end of your one-on-ones, you're already doing the right thing. And Kim, I imagine there's going to be someone who listens to this podcast and reads the book and says, okay, Kim, I I love the idea of radical candor. I care personally. I'm going to challenge my my team members directly. And then they go and do it. And for whatever reason, the behavior doesn't change, right? Yeah, It it won't change. When you give someone feedback, I, I tell people this all the time, and it's a lesson that I've had to learn over and over. But when you give someone feedback about something, especially... If it's, I mean, even if it's simple like ums, it was hard for me to change the um habit. It wasn't like I stopped doing it because Cheryl told me about it. And it wasn't like I stopped doing it because I went to see the speech coach. Like that helped. What really helped me actually solve the um problem was telling that um story publicly so many times. (laughs) I became hyper aware of my ums. So it is hard to change behavior. So I I think you need to work with people over time and and to remember to be patient with the feedback. There was a guy who worked for me whose team often found him intimidating or they found him negative. They were afraid of him a little bit. And he was not a scary guy. I don't know why they were so afraid of him, but they were. And I knew it and he knew it. Uh, And so I was trying to talk to him about this. And so I was trying to give him very specific examples of when he was being negative at the end of meetings. And about the fourth time I pulled him aside, he clutched his head, he rocked back and forth, and he was like, I know this is my personality, I can't change it. My wife has been telling me this for years. All her friends think I hate them. I don't have, it was, and I realized that I was being negative with my feedback (laughs) and that what I needed to do was a little more positive target identification. And so I said, okay, we're going to change this up. I'm going to point out to you every time I see you get it right, every time I see you encouraging someone in a meeting, every time I see you being positive in a meeting, I'm going to point out when you're getting it right and we're going to figure out how to change it that way. 
And he became one of the most beloved leaders at his company. It, it, that did work better. So remember that radical candor is not all about criticism. It's even more importantly about praise. Praise sort of shows what success looks like. Praise reminds people of what's possible and is a more effective tool in your toolkit than criticism. Now, you mentioned that the clarity of our guidance oftentimes gets measured at the other person's ear and not just at our mouths. So what are some ways to, to just make sure that whether it's, you know, uh, positive praise or, or criticism, that that message lands with as much clarity as possible? It's important to remember that praise needs to be specific and sincere and criticism needs to be kind and clear. And you want to go in to those conversations in the right mindset. So you want to make sure that you're being humble about what you're saying. The reason I call it candor and not truth is, to me at least, candor says, here's what I see. I'm curious to know what you see. Uh, whereas if I say, I'm going to tell you the truth, I'm sort of implying that I have the objective reality and whatever you think doesn't matter. Not that I'm opposed to truth, but candor to me feels more humble. You want to state your intention to be helpful. You want to do it right away. If the purpose of praise is to tell people what to do more of, and the purpose of criticism is to tell them what to do less of, why wait? You want to do it immediately. In the old world, I would have said you should do it in person. In the new world, I would say you should do it over video. There's a hierarchy of mediums. But the key point to remember is that something like 85, 90% of communication is nonverbal. So you want to be able to see how the other person is responding and adjust accordingly. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. And you want to be able to hear the other person. If you can't do it over video, you want to have a phone call. It needs to be synchronous. Don't offer feedback over text or email or something like that. Uh, you, you want to, as we've already talked about, you want to praise in public uh, and you want to criticize in private. And last but certainly not least, you don't want to offer praise or criticism about someone's personality attributes because personality attributes are very difficult to change. You want to offer sort of situation behavior impact. That's the, the model developed by the Center for Creative Leadership. And so what I mean by that is you want to describe the situation, you want to describe the behavior of the work product, and you want to show the impact that what the person did or said or the way they did or said it had on others and on the team's success. And when you do that, like when Cheryl said in the meeting, when you said um, every third word, it made you sound stupid. There's a world of difference between that and saying, Kim, the problem with you is that you're so stupid. You know, like that would have been discouraging. So, but I could change the ums. So you want to make sure you're talking about things that people can address. So, so like in the example I gave before of the, the perception of this guy is negative. That was a big problem because he felt like that was a core personality attribute. So I needed to sort of show specifically what he was doing and when he was getting it right. And that was what allowed him to present a different side of himself to the team. So that's sort of your mindset going in. But there's an even more important thing than what you say. And that is paying attention to how it lands for the other person. I call this gauging the feedback. You want to make sure that you understand 
how the other person is interpreting what you're saying. Because you may be saying one thing and odds are they're hearing something entirely different. I imagine team members may have different reactions to this type of feedback. So I wanted to know what this can recommend to help the other party feel at ease and hear your message the way you intend it. Feedback is measured not at your mouth, but at the other person's ear. So you're going to get, well, there's a million different responses you might get when you offer feedback, but let's boil it down to three. One, the person might be sad. And this is usually what people fear. This is usually why people don't give feedback because they're afraid the other person will be sad. And so if the other person seems upset or if they even begin to cry, a few things that can help. One is realize that this is your cue to move up on the care personally dimension. It's not your cue to move the wrong direction on challenge directly, but you do want to take, you don't want to ignore the emotion. You want to take a moment to address and acknowledge the emotion. And it's the same thing, by the way, if the person gets angry, which is the other emotion that we're often afraid of and the, the sort of rationalization for not, I, I don't want to tell them this because they might get mad. Again, if the person is sad or mad, it's your cue to move up on the care personally dimension. Uh, things you can do, very tactical things you can do to deal with these emotions. One is just to give voice to the emotion, don't ignore it. Say, it seems like I've made you upset. It seems like you are upset or angry. Name the, and be humble because very often we misinterpret each other's emotions. So for example, if you're talking to me and I burst into tears, it's probably not because I'm sad. It's probably because I'm angry. But, you know, I'm a woman. I'm not allowed to show I'm angry. So my instinct is to cry instead of yell. Uh, not always a helpful instinct, but make sure that you understand the other person's emotions. So that's one. Another thing you can do, very tactical bit of advice, bring a bottle of water for the other person if you're meeting in person. Because sometimes just the act of like picking up the bottle, taking the cap off the bottle, taking a sip of water gives the other person an opportunity to calm down because they don't want to be angry or sad any more than you want them to be angry or sad. So that can help. Another thing you could do, which never is a bad thing to say, is how can I help? How can I help? Just re remind the person that your instinct, your goal in having this conversation is to be helpful. And talk to other people about what helps them. These are hard moments. Now, these are the moments we fear. But what, what usually happens? What usually happens is the third thing. Person doesn't hear you. Sort of like I did to Cheryl. Oh, it's no big deal. I'm busy. Forget about the spe speech coach BS. That is when you have to forget about care personally for a moment. That's when you have to move further out on the challenge directly dimension then you might be comfortable moving. In fact, when I was writing Radical Candor, I sent that story that's it's in the book. I sent it to Cheryl and I said, is this how you remember it? And she said, gosh, did I really say that you sounded stupid? That's so mean. I can't believe I said that. And I said, yes, you did. She's like, wow, that was, that was intense. So it was hard for her. It was harder than it seemed for her to move out on the on the challenge directly dimension. It's hard for all of us. Very few people are eager to go there, but you've got to go there. It's your job to be clear when someone's not hearing you. So Kim, let's say you're practicing radical candor and it's actually working great for most people, 
But what about for those that you are delivering this type of feedback, you genuinely care about them, and they are not improving, they're not taking that feedback. At what point is it that you can make that decision that this is no longer a good fit, and perhaps it's not a good fit at the organization? Unfortunately, radical candor doesn't mean you'll never have to fire anyone. Uh, It just means that they won't be surprised when you fire them, if you have to fire them. It it doesn't always work. Uh, And there are times when people are in a job and maybe they hate the job. And that's why they're not doing a good job. But they don't feel free to quit or they don't, you know, they're afraid to quit. That's happens all the time. It's happened to me. It's probably happened like that happens all the time. So it is your job to be very clear about what the consequences will be. Say, we've talked about this. We've talked about this. I haven't seen improvement. It's your job to be really clear with people what the consequences will be. And then if the worst happens and no improvement gets made, when you do have to fire them, there's an obnoxiously aggressive way to fire the person, and there's a radically candid way to fire the person. So one of the things that I recommend to people when they have to have this, one of the hardest conversations a manager has to have, I mean, firing someone certainly is the worst part of the job as far as I'm concerned. You want to remember that it's not like the person is a bad person. I think very often we kind of get ourselves, because we're reluctant to fire the person, we tell ourselves this story about how this person is just worthless. And so, of course, we're firing them. And then you're, you're going to be obnoxiously aggressive if you get yourself to that place. So you want to remember that this person is not a bad person. And the problem is not like it's a bad job. The problem is it's a bad job for this person. And so try to imagine before you have the conversation where what job the person would be great at, where the person would be really effective and really happy. And that will get you to a better mindset. Uh, I think you want to be really clear with the person. One of the most painful moments that I've had is I was telling I was firing someone and she just didn't understand that I was firing her. And she kept telling me how she was going to fix it. And I, and I finally had to f- stop. You know, I had fired her now four times and she still hadn't heard it. And I, f- I finally had to say, no, you don't understand. Today is your last day. I need you to give me your computer and your badge when we finish this conversation. And I need you to, l-. it was awful. Uh, and every manager I know has had an experience like that where, They were so committed to firing someone in a kind way that the person showed up at work the next day, which was like the worst. That's the ultimate ruinous empathy because it was very embarrassing for the person. It was awkward for the whole team. And it was terrible for the manager who did a bad job firing that person. So you want to make sure that you're clear, uh, but also that you're kind. Right. And it, it seems like, you know, when you wait too long, it's, it, you know, unfair to everyone, right? Not just the organization and your team and, and yourself, but also to the to that person in, in the sense that they're not able to make progress. Yeah. Do you want to t- you want me to tell you like the story about the worst moment in my career, which is the radical candor warning story? Please. So, so, so I had I had hired this guy. We'll call him Bob. And I really liked Bob a lot. He was smart. He was charming. He was funny. He would do stuff like we were at a manager offsite and we were playing one of those endless get to know you games and we were all stressed and busy. It was a startup. Not, nobody really wanted to be doing this. 
And Bob was the guy who had the courage to say, you know, I can tell everybody's a little stressed and I've got an idea and it'll help us all get to know each other much better and it'll be really fast. If it was really fast, whatever his idea was, we were down with it. And he says, let's just go around the table and confess what candy our parents used when potty training us. Really weird, but really fast. Weirder yet, everybody remembered. And then for the next 10 months, every time there was a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. (laughs) So everybody loved working with Bob. He was a little quirky, but he was funny. Uh, He brought a little levity to the office. One problem with Bob, he was doing terrible work absolutely terrible work. He would hand stuff into me and there was shame in his eyes. He knew he was doing terrible work. And I was so confused. I couldn't understand what was going on because he had this incredible resume, this history of accomplishments. And uh, much later, actually, I learned the problem was that Bob was smoking pot in the bathroom three times a day, which maybe explained all that candy. But anyway, I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew was that Bob was doing terrible work. And eventually the inevitable happened. I realized that if I didn't fire Bob, I was gonna lose all my best performers because he was handing stuff in late. They were having to redo it. His deliverables were late. So their deliverables were late and they were getting more and more and more frustrated. So I sat down to have a conversation with Bob that I should have begun 10 months previously. And when I finished explaining to Bob where things stood, He looked me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question was going around in my mind with no good answer, he looked at me again and he said, why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all cared about me. And now I realized that I had failed Bob in a bunch of different ways. I had failed to solicit feedback from Bob. Maybe I was doing something that was frustrating him so much he was forced to toke up in the bathroom. I will never find out because I did not solicit feedback from him. I also didn't give him praise that was meaningful. The kind of praise I gave him was really just kind of a head fake. Oh, Bob, you're so awesome. Maybe you can make it a little better. And I also didn't tell him when his work wasn't nearly good enough. But probably worst of all, I failed to create the kind of environment in which everyone would tell Bob what was truly fun and good about working with him and when he was going off the rails. And because I had failed Bob in all these different ways, I'm now firing him because of it. And I was just trying not to hurt his feelings. Not so nice after all. Wow. In and okay, we've spoken at length about you know providing guidance and the importance of those relationships in the workplace. There's something you say in the sense that it's you can't really you know care personally about somebody else unless you truly care about yourself. And you use terms like work-life integration and whole self. If, if you could speak to those, one of the things that uh, again, my my coach at Google was Fred Kaufman, this wonderful wonderful coach, and he took, he drew a wheel on the whiteboard. And he said, you all are at the center of a wheel. Each of you is at the center of a wheel. And all of you want your wheel to spin faster so that you can achieve things, so that you can move forward. But if the wheel is out of alignment, the wheel cannot turn. And so he said, it's not like 
It's not like you're doing your job a disservice. It's not like you're doing your team a disservice if you get enough sleep and exercise and do whatever else you need. It's actually essential to your team's, not only your success and your happiness, but to your team's success and your team's happiness. And he was exactly right about that. I'm one of those people who needs like not eight hours of sleep, but really nine. And I used to feel guilty about going to sleep so early or sleeping so late. And I realized I shouldn't feel guilty about it. I should feel proud when I do it because I'm more effective at work when I do it and because I feel better all day long. But it actually is taking care of yourself is part of your job. If you can't manage yourself, you can't possibly manage other people. So one of the things that I really recommend to the the people who I coach is figure out what your recipe is. What are the things that you need to do in order to, to stay centered? And everybody's got a different recipe. Some people love to meditate. Other people hate to meditate. You don't have to take my recipe. I'll share mine with you, but not because it's your recipe. Mine is I need my nine hours of sleep. I need an hour of exercise. And I really need to have at least 20 minutes of conversation with someone who I love. And if I can do those three things every single day, and ideally I read a novel a week, but if, if I can do those things, no matter how unstable the world seems, I feel like I'm on solid ground. And if I don't do those things, then even when the world around me is very stable, I feel very unstable. So it's really important to figure out what your recipe is and follow it every day. And and what about the, you know, you know there's so much talk about work-life balance, right? But in many of the successful people that I speak with, they instead say work-life integration. I think it's really important. I, I didn't have kids until I was 41. The major reason is I didn't meet my husband until I was 39. But also part of the reason why I didn't want to start a family earlier is that I was afraid. And there's so much that gets written in, in the press that your career is going to make your family life impossible and your family life is going to make your career impossible. And it just all seemed too hard to me. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, I have done the best work of my career after my children were born. So maybe I would have been so much more productive if I had start a family whenever you're ready to start a family is the answer. But but don't fear that your life is going to interrupt your work. I also used to treat my need for sleep as something that interrupted my work time. No, I do better work if I get enough sleep. And so I have found that when I'm happy at work, then things go better at home. And when I'm happy at home, things go better at work. So it's a virtuous cycle. You can get a double bounce from family and career. It's not like one thing takes away from another. I'll never forget when my kids were little, I had a bad parenting moment, which we've all had, I think, where you know the kids were screaming in the backseat. I was driving them home and I slammed on the brakes and I pulled into a parking lot and I was like, I'm too angry. It's not safe for me to drive. I stomped around the car a few times. And then we got home and I sort of, I felt like I had to talk to the kids about this, but I had an important work call and I felt torn. Uh, But anyway, I took the work call and as I was talking and, you know, I shifted into competent advisor, CEO coach, Kim. And as I was on this call, my son like came and he sat down and he curled up next to me and he was like so relieved to see 
this uh, more in control mom than, than the one he had just seen. So you just never know how your work is going to help your parenting and your parenting is going to help your work. And in bringing this all together, I mean, this everything we discussed, both you know, personally and professionally, it seems like that by being willing to have these difficult types of conversations while also managing ourselves, it's almost like you operate, you're much more centered. You've said what needs to be said. People hear those things. It just overall, it just seems to lead to a much better life. So, you know, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, Kim, what does being a game changer mean to you? Being a game changer to me means living the life I imagined. I had these, uh, in fact, true confession. The reason why I started my business career was to subsidize my novel writing habit. And, uh, and finally, at this point, sort of my business career and my writing career have merged uh, in, in a way that brings me a lot of joy and, and I hope helps a lot of other people be their best selves, live the lives they imagined. I wanna give a huge thank you to Kim Scott for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when Kim mentioned that people can't build good relationships if they can't disagree with one another in a way that is respectful. And the clarity of your guidance gets measured at the other person's ear, not your mouth. The emotional response of the other person will help you to better understand how your message landed and how to adjust it if necessary. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Kim Scott, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking to Sherry Stewart Deutschman about how to maximize your profits by investing in your people. I would say the sooner you start giving your employees skin in the game, the sooner you'll be able to afford that and everything else you want to do. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Podcast.